Turn to Luke 20. Render to Caesar. Jesus is in his final few days before submitting to the death of the cross. The chief priests now desire to lay their hands on Jesus to destroy him for his parable about the vineyard and the evil husbandmen of the vineyard because they perceived that it was spoken against them, though they could not understand it themselves because it was spiritually discerned. But they're determined, indeed, to see Jesus destroyed. And now we read about various active ways in which they go about to see him destroyed. Now remember, by Roman law, though the Jews had some measure of self-governance and authority, they were not given the right to condemn a man to death without the approval of a Roman official. To this end, much of the character of their attempts over the, the rest of chapter 20 to destroy Jesus will center upon their efforts to make Jesus look bad in the eyes of Rome so that Rome will take the side of the authorities in, in Jerusalem the Jewish authorities, and agree that Jesus is a criminal, that he's dangerous, that he's seditious, that they can kill him. And this is uh, quite an uphill battle for the leaders in Jerusalem because Jesus' ministry is religious in nature, not political in nature. As we've mentioned many times over the past several um, weeks, over the past several chapters, really, of Scripture, Jesus was not coming to stage a political overthrow. And we understand this from, from two perspectives. That first perspective, most naturally, is that we know that Jesus' first advent was not the advent for him to set up his kingdom according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, he came offering the kingdom, but the sovereign foreknowledge of God knew that that offer would be rejected, that Jesus would be rejected, that they would um, uh, deny him, that they would kill him, and that he would then go unto his father, receive the kingdom, all of those things that we've been talking about and the gift of the gospel of salvation would be opened to the entire world. But secondly, Jesus' kingdom, remember, is not ever going to look like some sort of rebellion or coup. This is what Jesus taught in Luke 17, that Jesus' kingdom is not one that comes with observation. Right? You're not going to see that kingdom slowly build and then overthrow the, the reigning powers. He's going to come. It's going to be quick. He's going to dominate. He's going to assert his authority. And anyone that's with him is with him. Anyone that's against him is destroyed. Right? So it's never going to be like that, like, like the religious leaders are thinking or like all of Israel was thinking where he's a leader like with the Maccabees or any of the, the leaders of, of, of rebellions in their history where uh, there would be a movement and that movement would grow and then it would overthrow the occupying power. Right? It wasn't going to be like that. Now we step into an occasion today where this concept of entrapment again will, will be Realized, The religious leaders are going to seek to destroy Jesus through the power of the Roman authority. So we jump into our text in verse 20. We'll consider verses 20 through 26 this evening. And the Bible says this, And they watched him and sent forth spies which should feign themselves just men that they might take hold of his words that so they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. So the strategy of these religious leaders is to send men who would 
flatter Jesus, who would agree with Jesus, try to get him comfortable to take them into his confidence and then find the dirt on him that they could use it against him with Rome, right? So this is a a common political tactic, right? You get in friendly, you get the man to say things in confidence that he wouldn't otherwise say, or you get him to divulge his plans uh, that he wouldn't divulge publicly, and then you can use that to destroy him. So it's a typical deceitful undercover type stuff, right? Matthew 22 and Mark 12 tell us that the Pharisees sent their disciples with the Herodians. Those are the two parallel passages to this. The Pharisees sent their disciples with the Herodians. The Herodians were a group of people in in, in Judea who were loyal to Herod, who were loyal to the Roman authorities, They were not a religious group. They were a political group. They saw life through the lenses of politics in the same way the Pharisees saw life through the lenses of religion. I find it somewhat amusing as well, perhaps a little bit sad also, that the text tells us that they sent spies to pretend to be, and this is what the text tells us, to feign themselves to pretend to be just men. I might be reading into this a little bit. After all, this is written from the perspective of Luke. This is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it might be just a Luke's perspective kind of thing. This may not necessarily be what the Pharisees were thinking. But the thought comes into my head that these religious leaders knew full well that they were not being just in what they were doing. The idea of go pretend to be a good man. (laughs) Kind of, if you ever have to tell a person to pretend to be a good man... To get something out of you, you're probably not in the right place in your life, right? If you're pretending to be just, if you're pretending to be righteous, if you're pretending to be a good man, or you're employing others to do the same, you're probably on the wrong side of the issue on that one. And that's where they find themselves here, uh, because at this point, it's quite obvious they're just in, they're, they're interested in power here. This is a power play. Verse 21. And they, that would be this group of Pharisees and Herodians, they ask him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. So here's the lead up to the question that they're about to ask him, right? And it's quite flattering what they're saying about him. Master, we know that what you're saying, what you're teaching is right. And this is where the feigning of being just comes in, right? They, they're, they're flattering him with their tongue. We know that you accept the person of no man. What that means to accept a man's person, that means that you're not influenced by prejudices and misconceptions. You, you are not easily swayed by flattery, which is ironic considering they're saying this in flattery, right? And they say, we know that you don't accept the persons of any man. You don't judge a book by its cover. We know these things, that you're objective in your assessment. You're, you're right in everything that you say, that you teach the way of God in truth. So all this flattery, right? This was the foundation of their question. It's empty, But it's not sarcastic, and we need to know that too. They're not rolling their eyes saying, we know that you're always right. We know that you don't accept the persons of any man. We know that you're objective. They're not saying it in a a sarcastic sort of a way. They are attempting to flatter him, so they're saying it very seriously. They're saying these things in a way it's got, with conviction, with purpose, attempting to make it sound as sincere as possible in order to win his trust, in order to win his favor. However, Jesus is not going to fail. He's not going to fall for their deceit. Uh, Indeed, um, he's God. 
And so he, he cannot fall for their deceit. He is the same God of whom David wrote in Psalm 139, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and light are both alike to thee. This is the God that they are speaking to. The night is as the day to this God. We cannot hide from God. God sees all and He knows all. We cannot fool God. God is in the future as well as in the present. We cannot misdirect God. We cannot manipulate God for He knows our thoughts before we think them. To this end, their attempt to back Jesus in a corner must fail. It must fail. But they will try. And from it, not only will we learn of the nature of our Savior, but we'll learn a very important lesson of our relationship to authority. So they ask him, and here's their question in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? Now, the question here is about whether or not the Jews should pay taxes to Rome. Let's talk about why this is more or less a no-win situation for Jesus. We mentioned already that these Pharisees were there with the Herodians to ask this question. By doing so, the religious leaders sought to create a situation whereby no matter what answer Jesus gave, there was going to be a group of people angry with him. There was nothing in the Mosaic Law about payment of taxes to an occupying government. And that because the Mosaic Law anticipated obedience, right? The Bible anticipates obedience. Isn't that an interesting thing? Sometimes when people get into situations of disobedience, there's, there's muddy waters, right? Uh, all of the, the, the confusion surrounding things such as divorce. Well, why wasn't the Bible more clear about divorce in the Christian context? Because the Bible assumes you're not going to get divorced in the Christian context. It assumes obedience, right? And because it assumes obedience, it doesn't really get into all the nitty-gritty scenarios of what happens when you're disobeying. It assumes obedience. Well, the Mosaic Law assumed obedience. And because the Mosaic Law assumed obedience, it never gave any license for them to pay taxes to an occupying power because if they had obeyed the Mosaic Law, they never would have had an occupying power. They never would have ever been under occupation. So it would not have been an invalid argument from a zealously religious perspective to claim that Rome had no right under God to tax the nation of Israel, right? The, the Pharisees could say, I don't find in the law where God says we have to pay taxes to an occupying power. After all, we are God's people. We are under God's authority and God's authority alone. And they could go back and they could justify that perspective from the law based upon the ideals of Scripture. Of course, this perspective was only seen among those who regarded the law of God as greater authority than the law of Rome. And since the Romans called their Caesar God in flesh, they obviously had no regard for the preeminence of the law of Moses over their own laws. So the Pharisees were there, ready to get angry at Jesus if he told them that they should pay taxes to Rome. Because that's not in the law. But the Herodians were there too, remember. And the Herodians were there to get angry at Jesus if he said they should rebelliously and treasonously advocate for people not paying taxes. So you had the religious zealots on one side and you had the political zealots on the other side and the question was basically religious or political. Which one are you going to choose? 
And this, of course, was their deepest intent because Jesus was a holy man and because they wanted Rome to get involved in the condemnation. Digging deeper still, however, what we're looking at is a tension which has always existed, hasn't it? Throughout history, there has always been a tension between religion and politics. Always. Even though for most of history and most, in most cultures, religion and politics have been deeply intertwined, there's a tension that surrounds who is truly in charge. Religious men and women regard God as their ultimate authority. Politicians, especially supreme politicians such as monarchs, dictators, despots, etc., they often regard themselves as the ultimate authority. And to this end, religious people have historically been the most difficult to control in any population because they regard the commands of their God as an order of higher magnitude than the commands of their earthly authorities. But even more so, they regard the concept of earthly authority to be a fundamentally out-of-character concept with the idea of divine authority. And so typically they, they, they reject the... the um, earthly authority in deference or in favor to their heavenly authority. Now, for many hundreds of years, this was mitigated in history by the sanction of various kings. In Western history, by the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, the Pope would sanction a king to rule. The king had divine sanction and authority to rule underneath the Pope, in a manner of speaking. And there was this tension where the king ruled over his land, but if he made the Pope angry, then the Pope could excommunicate him, and then he would lose that, the credibility of his, of his monarchy because the Pope was not behind him, and the Pope was the representative of God, and God is the one who ordains kings, right? And then there, 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 this changed a little bit when uh, the, the Catholic Church fell out of favor in England and there became this idea of the divine right of kings. The divine right of kings, very common in Great Britain in the late 1500s and then going, of course, into the 1600s. Uh, that's what King James, uh, who had our, uh, the, the, our translation commissioned, uh, he was really big into this divine right of kings. The idea stated that, that by divine sanction, kings ruled, therefore kings were infallible. So basically the Pope, the idea that the Pope is infallible because he, he ruled by authority of God through the apostolic succession, which of course is, is, is wrong, uh, kind of transitioned over to the king once the king was able to strip the power from the Pope through elements of the Reformation. And now you have the divine right of kings, which says the king is infallible because God has ordained him. By the way, this happens in churches today, doesn't it? Pastor elder is infallible because he's God's chosen man over the church. Anytime you hear uh, anything like that, there, there's something slightly off about that. At least slightly. At least slightly. Probably much more than slightly off about that. Many cultures throughout history, therefore, if you trace cultures, have done something different. In Western culture, we've seen this tension. Many cultures have solved this tension by making the highest authority in the land not a political authority, but rather a religious authority. We see this in much of Jewish history, don't we? Who ruled? A judge. For the first 450 years of Jewish history. What was a judge? A judge was a divinely appointed leader. He was a leader, not, not so much in a political sense, he was more of a military, military sense. And then you had the high priest. And then in the years following the kings, during the intertestamental period, the high priest effectively functioned as the king. The high priest was the highest office in the land. And as such, it was intended that there would be no conflict between the political and the religious because they were merged. 
And of course, this was a similar idea to the church-state system of the Catholic Church, uh, but not just the Catholic Church. It was a similar idea to the church-state system of the Methodist Church and the Calvinist Church and, and um, all of those churches during those early years of the Reformation and beyond as well. Claiming that a man speaks for God is not an uncommon thing. Claiming that a man, the leader of your country, is God is not an uncommon thing in paganism, is it? Pharaoh, as we know from history, was considered the God of Egypt. He was considered divine. If you read the writings, Caesar Augustus called himself divine. And the Caesars, subsequently, were called divine. They were considered to be God in flesh. And this happens throughout history where the political ruler claims divinity to solve this problem of the tension between religion and politics. It was indeed the very concern of religion and politics that led the early colonies of our United States of America prior to being united to insist on the First Amendment, which safeguarded religious institutions from the power of the state but also safeguarded the state from the power of religious institutions. The amendment, that First Amendment, did not, under any rational way of thinking, by the way, disqualify people in government, or the government itself even, from engaging in religious activity, or disqualifying religious people from serving or making decisions based upon religious convictions. That's not anywhere in the First Amendment. That's not anywhere in the, in the original intent of the First Amendment. Instead, the First Amendment was intended to keep the state from being able to use religion to enforce its power. So that the king could go to the religious leaders and say, hey, tell your people this from the pulpit and tell them if they don't do it, God will be angry at them. And it's a political ploy. Or the other way around. So that the church cannot use the government to enforce its power. So that I, as a pastor, can't go to the police chief in town and say, hey, so-and-so wasn't at church on Sunday. Stop by their house and tell them the next time they're not in church, you're going to arrest them. That's what the First Amendment is about. So that the church can't use the power of the state to enforce its dogma, and the state can't use the power of the church to enforce its politics. That's the first, well, that's a part of the First Amendment. Also, freedom of the press, such. But that's the idea as far as the, the freedom of religion is concerned. And this was included specifically to eradicate the church-state systems that were prevalent among Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, and Calvinists of the day. All of this to say that this tension has always existed, right? The Herodians on one side, the Pharisees on the other side. Politics on one side, religion on the other side, and they're trying to stick Jesus right in the middle because they know, and we've seen this throughout history, that politics and religion have this irreconcilable tension with each other until the day that Jesus reconciles them as prophet, priest, and king. So this was the issue. Now we see this even throughout our Bibles. We see it in Gideon's day. Judges chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son and thy son's sons also. For thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. It was the tension seen in Samuel's day when the people came to him in 1 Samuel 8 verses 5 and 6 and said unto him, 
Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. It was the tension in the days of Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah in Daniel. Chapter 3, verses 13, uh, 16 through 18. The Bible says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Politics and religion, the tension. It's the same in Esther's day with Mordecai. In Esther chapter 3, verse 2, And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Why? Because he would not bow to anyone but the Lord. The tension between politics and religion. This is not a new tension. It's not a new tension biblically. It's not a new tension historically, culturally, any of the sort. It was this very tension that they wanted to use to catch Jesus. If he said we should pay our taxes, then Jesus was a traitor to God, to the law of Moses and to the nation under the oppression by a foreign government in defiance to God's decree that they should be a nation and that the land of Canaan is theirs by divine right. If he had said that they should not pay taxes, then Jesus was a traitor to Rome. He was a seditious man, insurrection, all of those things. And he was disloyal to Caesar and to the government that ruled over them. You might relate to this tension in your own life. Where you have two people who see only extremes and believe that any sort of a middle ground is an unacceptable compromise. This happens in churches all the time. In the same day, I've had people come up to me and tell me that our church is too conservative and that our church is not conservative enough in the same ways. In the same day, there's always a tension between extremes, right? If you've ever been in such a situation, you understand perhaps what's going on here with Jesus. He's in a no-win situation. But consider well the stakes of this event, which are very high. And so Jesus has to give an answer, and he gives... Just a fantastic answer. Verse 23. He perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? That's not his whole answer, by the way. Jesus' initial reaction is to let them know that he has not been duped by their flattery. He knows that they are tempting him, trying him, trapping him. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's not been very patient with the disingenuous questions of those that are around him. When asked at the beginning of the chapter by what authority he did these things, he would not tell them unless they answered first his question back to them. But he has been heavily emphasizing the kingdom of light. He's told them that the kingdom will come. He's told them that the kingdom is not yet. He's preparing his followers for that life in between when they wait for the kingdom, when they will live as dogmatic and fervent followers of a kingdom economy, but also live under the rule of human governor. So our Lord sees fit to answer this question for them, but for us as well, and for the benefit of all who have been living in this time as we wait for the Lord's kingdom to appear. So he says in verses 24 and 25, show me a penny. Whose image and superscription hath it? They answered and said, Caesar's. 
And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. So Jesus asks to see what the King James calls a penny. In the Roman economy, it was called a denarius. It was a principal silver coin of the Roman Empire. Historically, we would understand it to be about a day's wage. So it was weighted to be about a day's wage. You give the man one uh, denarius, one penny, as it said here, and that would be his day's wage. And Jesus asks them, take a look at that. Whose inscription does it have on it? And they look at it and they say, well, obviously, Caesar's image and Caesar's inscription. As with most forms of currency in most countries, uh, the U.S. being a notable exception to this and has led other countries to change their tradition um, to some degree. But for most of history, coins and monies are imprinted with the face of the current ruler of the nation. When a ruler changes, they print new money. And they print new money with the new ruler's face on it, with the new ruler's inscription on it. The U.S. does not do that because the U.S. is not a nation that is led by a king. The president is not intended to be a big man in our system. He's intended to be an afterthought. We shouldn't have to hear about him. We shouldn't have to think about him. We shouldn't have to worry about him. And so what do we imprint our money with? The good men of the past. Good leaders of the past. Men who have earned the right to be on the money of a nation who uh, doesn't revere people like people would revere a monarch. Unfortunately, that's changed today. Not the money thing, just the reverence thing. So he asks, whose imprint is on the money? They plainly say Caesar's image, Caesar's name. And then Jesus replies plainly, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things which are God's. The principle is quite plain. We'll, We'll unpack it more in our application. It's a principle of general divine design more than just a principle of theology. When we use a government's currency, when we use a government's infrastructure, when we are benefiting from a government's protection, when we are protected by a government's laws, likewise, what is God's, we render to God. When we're befitting from God's gift of life, when we're benefiting from God's protection, when we're benefiting from God's blessings, when we're benefiting from God's wisdom, we give back to God what is appropriate of these gifts. And we do the same with government. We give back to them as appropriate to to what we benefit. So how did that go over? Jesus' answer. We'll talk again, we'll talk more about this. How did this go over? Well, it 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 actually went over okay. No one could be angry with him in this answer. The Bible says in verse 26, and they could not take hold of his words before the people. And they marveled at his answer and held their peace. So the Herodians thought Okay, I like that. Give unto Caesar what's Caesar's and give unto God what's God's. And the Pharisees thought, well, it is Rome's money and it's Rome's infrastructure and that kind of makes sense. And he's not saying not to give to God his due. Okay. And they all kind of went away dissatisfied because they were so satisfied with his answer. And uh, they marveled at his answer. And so they, they shut their mouths. They held their peace. Uh, it's so simple, it's so clear, it's so consistent, so very in line with biblical principle. And I'm not going to steal my own thunder because this is where our application is going. I will share with you why Jesus' words here are so stunning in their simplicity and consistency with Old Testament principle as we get toward the end of our time together.
So everyone leaves satisfied with Jesus' answer, which means they probably left, as I mentioned, quite grumpy uh, because they couldn't use Jesus' words against him. Thus ends their attempt to confuse and to catch Jesus in a gotcha moment, at least for this week, and we'll, we'll find another one next week. And this is where we'll end our exposition for today, and, and it brings us to our application. The Christian's relationship to government has always been a topic of major debate. I'm not going to settle that debate tonight any more than any other theologian can settle that debate. But I do want to give you some important principles which the Bible teaches concerning the Christian's relationship, not just to government, but we'll branch that off to authority. Many of you have heard it from me before, but it bears remembrance. And as we consider these principles, uh, then it's up to us with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to figure out what that means for each of us. Biblical principle number one. Physical authorities have a right to your submission. Physical, earthly authorities have a right to your submission. This principle in relation to government is taught in many epistles but finds its primary teaching in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. We've talked about them not too long ago, but I'd like to cover these passages briefly with you again. We'll just walk through Romans 13 first. The Bible says, Let every soul be subject unto higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. But they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause, here it is, Pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So here in Romans 13, we're called by Paul to be subject to the higher powers, those specifically being government entities and authorities. And the basis for Paul's argument here is simply this that the powers that be are ordained of God. God makes kings. It is the same argument by which we can look in the eyes of a, of a government and tell them that they need to be careful how they treat their people. Because God gave them their authority, God set them up, and God can put them down. And if this is true, then our submission to the king is not conditioned upon them. It is not for their sake. It is not about whether they're good or bad, but rather it's based upon what God has ordained them to do and how we dispose ourselves towards God and God's ministers. Now, the warning in verse 2 is that whoever resists the powers that are ordained of God, in fact, resists the ordinance of God himself, who sets up kings. And they that resist receive to themselves what the King James calls damnation. This word in the King James is actually a word that simply means judgment. Uh, it can mean damnation, but it doesn't necessarily mean damnation. We'll see this same word used as condemnation next week. And again, judgment uh, is the flavor there. The warning here is not that those who resist human authorities will be damned to hell, 
Much rather, the warning is that those who resist human authorities will be judged by God under his standard of judgment for rebellion against a God-ordained authority. When you rebel against a God-ordained authority, it doesn't matter if it's government, parent, husband, boss, there is a judgment of God for that. There's a judgment. God will judge. And those that resist the authorities are resisting the ordinance of God and are lining themselves up for judgment. The same word that's translated damnation, judgment, in Romans 13, 2, Jesus uses in Matthew 7, verse 2, when he says this, For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. The warning in Romans 13 is that God will judge those who rebel against him by rebelling against ordained authorities. And God sees rebellion against your ordained authorities as rebellion against him. There's no way around this in Scripture, believer, that when you rebel against a God-ordained authority, you are rebelling against God Himself. Okay? Rulers have a God-ordained purpose, which Paul presents as being, in the, in the, the case of government, a terror to evil, not to good works. Rulers are ministers of God for good, intended to keep the evil in the shadows of society and to avenge those who would strip another man of their God-given rights. So Paul calls upon each man in verse 5 to be subject for two reasons. First, for wrath's sake, because if you aren't subject to authorities, God will judge you. Secondly, and more importantly, for conscience' sake, because God has commanded us to do so. Excuse me, the wrath's sake was not the wrath of God. The wrath's sake is the wrath of your authority. My apologies there. The first is for wrath's sake, because if you don't obey your authority, your authority can punish you. The second is for conscience sake, because if you don't obey your authority, then God will judge you. My apologies there. And for this reason also, Paul says in verses 6 and 7, we should pay our taxes. Because like obedience, honor, fear, and respect, tribute is due unto those who offer something to society. In the example of Romans 13, society and government offer its citizens protection from evildoers, whether foreign or domestic. And for this service, they are entitled to some taxes. This, of course, has a way of riling up American Christians who are a deeply unsubmissive lot. Our country was founded upon rebellion in the name of God. And so these concepts run counter to the very essence of the founding of a country which I believe we would all say we love and appreciate deeply for the freedoms that we've been given here. Freedom to our family, the freedoms really that that in, in, in many ways the United States has brought to much of the Western world. And when we see oppressive men rule over us who seek to take what we hold dear, like some leaders who have been or are in office, our revolutionary spirit revives in us so that we perhaps identify far more with the, com- the, the, the concept of a government should be afraid of its people than we identify with the concept let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Right? But here's the thing. One of those two statements, a government should be afraid of its people, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, one of them is found in the Bible One of them is a biblical principle. The other is not. Some might argue from Romans 13, but pastor, Paul tells us that that we are to submit because they're not a terror to good works, but to evil. So when a government becomes a terror to good works and a friend of evil, 
Doesn't that invalidate Romans 13? You know, that's the same argument whereby a Pharisee would say, it doesn't say in the Bible that we should pay taxes to an occupying power, so we shouldn't pay taxes to an occupying power. It's the same argument. The Bible deals with expectations. The expectation of a government is that they would do this thing, that they would provide for the safety, foreign and domestic, of their people. It doesn't mean that's the only context within which we submit. Paul's point here is not to say that a government, uh, that government righteousness is the only condition upon which we're obligated to submit to them. Rather, the whole line of reasoning is simply to remind us that the government was ordained by God for a purpose. And because it has a purpose, we should not be hasty as Christians to dismiss them and their authority. In other words, yearning in the heart of every true believer is the desire for Christ's kingdom to come, right? It's a part of the model prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On that day, God will rule and reign over us. No more bureaucracy, no more corruption, no more flawed systems. And because we see such a stark difference between the corruption of human government and the promise of divine justice, we have a tendency to loathe, resent human government. And it's a very natural tendency. It's, it's very much, I mean, it's what this nation was founded on, the resentment of government. But government is ordained by God, flawed though it may be. And you know, thank God that God uses flawed vessels. I don't know how many times I've said that over the last few weeks. Because if God couldn't use flawed authorities, not only would we be casting off human governments, but my children would be casting off their father. My wife would be casting off her husband. God has ordained authorities. And you'd be casting off your pastor, by the way. God has ordained authorities. Not because they're perfect. Not because they're even good. But because there's a function. And that function is in place. And it's God's design. And he's asked for it. And it's our privilege to live within that design. And it's God's privilege to bless us when we do it properly. Now, I want to talk about this on that higher level for a moment. I've been flirting with that higher level. Let's consider what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, and I'm going to continue past the part of government to get to a higher principle here. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 20. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so, <coughs> excuse me, for so is the will of God, listen to this, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject unto your masters with all fear. Not only, here, here, listen to this, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it, believer, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if when ye do well, and suffer for it, ye shall take it patiently. Here, I'm flipping the shells. Ye take it patiently. It, this is acceptable with God. 
Peter commands his readers to submit themselves to every ordinance of man, not for man's sake. Not for man's sake. What did it say? Every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. To kings, to governors, to police officers, to those in authority. And the reason Peter gives uh, is this in verse 15. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That by uh, submitting to your authorities, we can cut off the idea. And it's an idea that's been used in every generation of the Christian church. We can cut off the idea that Christians are an insidious and insurrectionist group of rebels who want to cast off government and who only is accountable to the God that's in his mind. Every generation of the church has had this charge levied against them. And every time we rebel against our authorities, we give them a little bit of extra wood to fan the flame of that fire. This is what they're trying to do to Jesus right here, isn't it? They tried to get him to choose God over earthly authorities and so to give cause for the earthly authority to charge them with rebellion and so to persecute them and so to destroy them. This is what the early church went through in Rome. Rome called them a seditious group, traitors. And we're seeing it again. We're seeing it in this generation. You see it over in the Middle East. They are traitors. They are seditious. They are seeking to overthrow the government. This charge has been levied against every generation of the church. But a servant of God is not a rebel. God hates rebellion. God hates rebellion. A servant of God is not a rebellious person. A servant of God does not stand in opposition to his God-given authorities. We'll give the exception in a little bit. A servant of God submits to the ordinances of men. A servant of God honors the king. And then, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) just a moment. A servant, uh, Peter goes on to say, be subject to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Don't be submissive to authorities just that treat you well. Be submissive to all authorities, even those that hate you, harm you, abuse you, stand against you, falsely accuse you. Why? Once again, it's not because of them. It's not for them. It's for the Lord's sake. For this is thankworthy before God. If a man endures grief, suffering wrongfully, it doesn't mean God wants you to suffer. But what it means is that when you do right and you suffer for doing right, God is pleased. Not that you're suffering, but that you're doing right in spite. And there's a reward there. Oh, we've talked about rewards so much in, the, in Luke, especially in these end chapters. Have you, have you begun to process the, the, the glory of the rewards that God has prepared for those who love him? There's a reward here, Christian. There's a reward when you obey, when you submit to your authorities. And there's an even greater reward when they're a bad authority and you submit anyway. This is thankworthy before God. It is not what God wants for you to suffer wrongfully. But when you do, the heart of God breaks for you. And He rewards you where they punish. He blesses where they curse. The heart of God is always upon the innocent, the needy, and the wrongfully treated and abused. So much so that in the Psalms, excuse me, I believe it's the Proverbs, the Proverbs warn not to curse your enemy. 
Because if you curse your enemy, God might just have mercy on them for your curse. Because God is so invested in righting wrongs. He's so invested in righting wrongs. So Peter tells us, if we suffer for doing wrong, we are getting exactly what we deserve. God sees the natural justice in that. But when we suffer for doing well, God steps in and blesses us where they curse us. So let us now in these moments take a step back and gain a greater perspective. The question is this. Can you, believer, trust that if you submit to your God-ordained authorities, even when it isn't fun, even when you feel like you're losing something or giving something up, can you trust that God will reward you in greater ways than you can imagine? Young person, your parents were given to you by God. Maybe they make bad decisions. Maybe they aren't even believers. Maybe they're overbearing. Maybe they're impulsive and immature. Did God make a mistake when he gave you those parents? He did not. Are they your God-ordained authorities? Yes, they are. Now, we know what purpose parents are. Train up a child in the way they should go, right? To nurture them in the admonition of the Lord. To lead their children into righteousness. To teach them by word and by deed of God's way. This is the purpose of parents. Just like the purpose of government is to protect us from evil. But the Bible does not state that if they fail at their job, you are not responsible to submit to them. It's not there. Can you trust that if you honor your parents as the Bible commands, that God will bless you, guide you, and lead you through them or in spite of them? Can you believe that even if your parents are unbelievers, that if God has ordained them as your parents, that God can use them in your lives to do what is best for you, and that if you submit to their guidance and leadership, honoring them, that God will use them to guide you into what is best for you? But pastor, I think something is God's will for me, and it's a good godly thing, and my parents are telling me I can't do it. Well, unless it's a command of God, we'll talk about that in a moment, don't do it. Unless they're telling you to disobey God's word, trust that God can and is using them to lead you into his perfect will, even if it seems less than ideal. God works in ways that are less than ideal, doesn't he? God has to, because we are all less than ideal. God uses flawed men, flawed institutions, flawed ideas to work out his perfections. Did God's power to use flawed vessels end at your parents' decision-making process? I don't think so. Proverbs 21 verse 1 tells us, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. If God can turn the heart of a wicked king to work out his will, do you think God can turn the heart of your parents to work out his will? I think he can. Does this mean life will be easy? No. Does this mean sometimes you will have to put your plans on hold? It might. But can you trust that God has a purpose for it all? And if God wanted you somewhere faster, he would lay it upon your parents' heart to let you have it? By the way, this is the same principle 
as the government principle, and it's the same principle with any authority. Husbands, wives. So your husband makes bad decisions. That's not a good thing. But the absolute worst thing you can do spiritually and practically is rebel against him. To rebel against him is to rebel against a God-ordained authority. In doing so, not only does that not help your relationship with him, but here's the thing. It pits God against you. Let me, let, let me give you a perspective on this. If you're doing what's right, wife, with a husband that's doing wrong, then God will resist your husband for his poor decisions and lack of love for you. God will be working on your husband. But if instead you choose to fail in your submission to him, instead of resisting your husband for his wrong decisions, whatever it might be, he is now resisting you for your rebellion against the God-ordained authority. And now he's resisting you because you are not submitting. This is the principle. Child, whereas the Lord would be working on your parents to bring their hearts in alignment with his will if you were in submission, instead, as you rebel, he's now resisting you because of your rebellious heart against the God-ordained authority. So now your parents are not even the full issue because you're walking in rebellion. So God's got to deal with you before he can even give you <laughs> his will through, through your parents. Anytime you resist the authority in your life, you're working backwards of what you really want. Which is God's will to be done. The same can be said for the employee-employer relationship. The same can be said for student-teacher, for pastor-layman, for government-citizen. God has ordained various authorities and they have the right to your submission. Now, th there's a line that must be drawn whenever we consider this topic, and that's our second point. Point number two, biblical principle number two. Physical authority stops where it contradicts God's authority. Physical authority stops where it contradicts God's authority. We spoke earlier of various instances in the Bible where politics and religion clashed. And we mentioned two specific instances where uh, the Jews were in captivity. One was Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. The second was Mordecai, the uncle of the Hebrew girl Hadassah, also named Esther. In both of these instances, we see these men refuse to obey the command and authority of their authority to worship a false god because it contradicted God's explicitly expressed will to worship only Him. In both of these instances, they defied their authorities and the Bible commends them for their faith and their courage in doing so. We find a similar account in the early church where the Jewish council forbade the apostles from preaching the gospel of Christ. We find this in Acts chapter 5 where the Bible says this. This is the, the Sanhedrin speaking in verses 28 and 29, saying, Did we not straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood, that would be Jesus' blood, upon us. Then said Peter and the other apostles, excuse me, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather 
than men. In this instance, the apostles make it clear that in order to obey their God-ordained earthly authority, they would be forced to disobey God himself. They are unwilling to disobey God himself, who is a higher authority than any earthly authority. The authority of these earthly powers ends at the point where they would seek to enter into the realm of God's authority or at the point at which they would seek to command those under them to disobey God. And this is an important principle with regard to earthly authorities. That when an earthly authority asks you to do something or not to do something that is directly contradictory to the Word of God, you have the right, prayerfully, respectfully, peaceably, to refuse. Now, when this happens, it does not mean the earthly authority is going to lose his power, which means you should expect that when you defy an earthly authority, you're going to face his wrath. There will be consequences for that. That's a part of following God. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were thrown into the furnace for their refusal to bow to a god. Mordecai and his entire ethnicity (laughs) were condemned to be destroyed for his refusal to disobey God. If you're going to stand up for God, you need to be prepared to suffer for that decision, to accept the consequences on this earthly plane. Those consequences may be small. They also may be great. Or they may not happen at all. But God's blessing for such decisions rests primarily in heaven. And any decision he might make to intervene physically which we see in the case of the three Hebrew children and we see in the case of Mordecai. In both cases, God physically intervened to overrule even the the wrath of the authority. That's his right to do that, but it's never his obligation, nor is it his promise. It's important to stress here, however, that anytime you rebel against an authority, be it government or parent or husband or church, you will stand before God and answer for that decision. And you can know for certain that God will not be on your side if your rebellion is not legitimate. To this end, rebellion should always be the last resort. And you need to know without any doubt or as little doubt as humanly possible that you're in the right before God because if you're wrong, God will resist you. To this end, do not rebel based on subjectively believed things about God's will for your life. Don't say, I believe God's will is leading me in this way, and my parents say no, but I'm going to rebel against what my parents say to do because I ought to obey God rather than men. It doesn't work that way. If you can open your Bible and show where your parents are telling you to do something that God says not to do, good, well, You you ought to obey God rather than men. But if your conviction to rebel against your parents is based only upon your perception of the way God is leading you, based not on any command, but only in signs and feelings, you're on extremely dangerous ground. Because God leads through authorities. God leads through authorities. And so if your authority is telling you no, and you say, but but I've I've seen the signs you're on dangerous ground. If your authorities aren't on your side and you think God is on your side, then there's a contradiction which you need to explore very carefully before you act. Very, very carefully. 
If you think God wants you to do something, but your pastor thinks you shouldn't or warns you against it, and you can't go back to chapter and verse and say, pastor is wrong, this is what the Bible says, then you should deeply question why God-ordained leadership in your life has not been led by God to agree with what God has ordained to be your will or his will for you in that circumstance. Uh, My wife and I ran across this all the time when we were at college. When we were working there and we had young people under us and they'd come up and they'd say, but I love so-and-so, but what about your parents? Well, they don't like him. Well, <laughs> what about your parents? Oh, but, but, but it's so clearly God's will. We, we're compatible. We're this, we're that. But what about your parents? See, they are God's ordained authority, not just authority, but protection for you. God has ordained them. And if they say no, even for all the strangest of reasons, look, you need to tread very carefully because they are God-ordained authorities. And I cannot go to chapter and verse that says, thou shaltest marryest her. So tread very, very carefully and always lean toward if my parents are not for it, if my pastor's not for it, if the God-ordained authorities and leadership in my life are resisting me in this, then I need to back off of this and trust that God can change their hearts and will change their hearts if He wants to happen and be patient and wait upon the Lord. And the same applies to government. I can wind my way around all sorts of government decisions. I can make a very strong case for why all taxation is theft. I can. And that my government is depriving me of life, liberty, and property through overregulation. I can make that argument too. To this end, I can argue that the government is defying the God-given mandate to protect me and that to resist the government is to do God's work. I can make that argument. And many do, by the way. But may I caution you? When you stand before God, you will not answer for your opinions and perceptions. You will answer for God, against God's word. Your opinion and perception will not mean anything before God. God's word is what matters. So make sure that you're on the right side of God, not just on the right side of logic, reason, or the legal code. Is rebellion against authority ever necessary? Yes, it is. But let it always and only ever be done with the deepest of care. Let it always and only ever be done with much prayer, the strongest conviction in in the Spirit. Let it only and ever be done among the counsel of godly people who agree with you that this should be done. Let it only and ever be done when it is clear that they are asking you to do something that is against the will of God. And if any doubts exist or linger, default to submission. Principle number three. Render to everyone what is theirs. This is the biggest, the, 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 the highest principle here that, that we're dealing with. So we kind of start with government and then to all authorities. And now render to every man what is his due. Jesus calls for us to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. This is actually an application of a much broader principle in the scriptures of justice whereby each person is given what is due to them, both positively and negatively. Each man is due what he has earned. The idea pervades Old Testament law. In Leviticus 19.36, the Bible calls for us to weigh, uh, for us, for Israel, uh, to just weights and balance 
that a man should never defraud another man of what is his due by falsely reporting and so giving him less than he deserves. Deuteronomy 25.4 calls for men not to muzzle an ox when he treads the corn. That an ox is working so he has the right to eat of the corn that he's treading. Deuteronomy 24.14 gives the principle of mercy, stating that the poor and needy, by virtue of shared humanity, is due your benevolence, is due your generosity in order to help him in a time of need. The poor and needy, Bible says, are due that by shared humanity. Luke 10.7, Jesus tells us that the laborer is worthy of his hire, that those who labor deserve just compensation for their efforts. Malachi 3.8 tells the nation that they had robbed God of his tithes and offerings because he was the one who had blessed them and they had not refilled his storehouse as he had filled theirs. And that they had robbed him of his due. The principle plays out negatively as well. Back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God says that if a man sheds the blood of another man, his blood should be shed. The principle is extended to Exodus 21, 24, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Principally speaking, this is the same concept as the positive elements of justice and fairness, that a man who has done wrong has earned wrong in return, and that under divine justice, he should be remunerated in turn by God-ordained authorities. So this is not a unique principle in Scripture. The idea that we, ought, we, we have the right to what is due unto us, that the laborer is worthy of his hire. The government is ordained by God, and it has the right to your submission. But in Luke 20, Jesus speaks on another plane, that the government has the right to your taxes because the government provides services. They provide a consistent form of currency and the conveniences that come with it. So they have the right to tax you. They provide roads and infrastructure, provisions and protections. Now, we could argue that we don't want all these things, right? That they're providing more than what we want and that we shouldn't have to pay for things that we don't want. We can argue that. But I'm personally glad that the federal government funds national defense. That's kind of nice. I'm personally glad that Buffalo employs a police department. I like that. I'm personally glad that I have clean water to drink and I can open a tap anywhere in this city and get generally good clean water that I can drink without fear of death? Could many of these things be better served by the public sector? Most likely. But that's not how things are. And if the laborer is worthy of his hire, then I need to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, I could argue with myself all day on these points. Literally, counterpoints are coming to my mind as I'm saying this stuff, right? I admit this isn't the strongest argument because government is bad at everything it does. Everything that government does is 10 times more expensive and 100 times less efficient than if it were in the private sector. This is, this is just history, right? Thank God I still live in a country where I can say these things without being thrown into jail for being a political dissident. Thank God for that. Thank God I live in a country where I can still be a part of the process as well of changing it. But this is where we flee to a higher principle. That we yet submit for conscience sake before God for conscience sake before God. 
I might be able to get away with it with man, flee his wrath, whatever, but for conscience sake before God. And we reconcile this theological imperative with the practical realities of the authorities under which I serve. I can change my job if my boss is really bad. I can move if my local state or federal government becomes too oppressive. But even if I cannot change my authority, such as with parents, and if you've said your marriage vows, your husband or wife, I'm still under an obligation to submit. So it is that we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto your parents what is your parents', and unto your boss what is your boss's, and unto your husband's what is your husband's, and unto your pastor what is your pastor's. The natural extension of this highest principle of giving to each person what is theirs by right. As we close, I just want to bring this back to an appeal to faith. Faith is not an easy thing. To trust that God can work things out when I act in a way that I perceive to be contrary to my best interests is not easy, nor is it necessarily enjoyable or fun or any of those, any positive word. But I would like to leave you with an important call to a shift in perspective, one that we've seen several times in Luke. It isn't easy or fun if my eyes are on the road right before me to yield the benefits of rebellion today for the promises and rewards of submission tomorrow. It isn't easy or fun to live under the direction of unkind, foolish, or evil people or institutions on the basis of promises that are to come. It isn't fun to appear weak or powerless because I'm deferring my rights to avenge myself or stand up for myself to a God who promises to avenge me and to stand up for me. There have been thousands and thousands of Christian men and women who have taken this philosophy of submission to an early and untimely death. And if that's all you see, submission will always be a chore. And you will most likely talk yourself out of it. Or if you do it, it'll only be an action, not really in spirit. And so rebellion's still there. But if you do as Jesus has called us to do throughout the book of Luke, if you focus not on the chore of what I'm losing or what I think I'm losing, it's the same thing as the promises of the world, isn't it? The world says, look what you're losing by following Christ. Look at what you're giving up by following Christ. Look at what you're giving up by not having promiscuous relationships like the world. Look what you're giving up by not getting drunk and, 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 and uh, getting high and, and, and pursuing the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And, and, and if, you, if you turn your eyes toward what the world says you're losing, it's always going to look that way. But if we have a proper, a biblical, a heavenly perspective, we look at things from God's eyes, we see the rewards, we see the benefits, we see the design, and we say, I'm losing nothing and I'm gaining everything. I'm losing nothing and I'm gaining everything. Does it make life a little bit harder at times? Yes. More inconvenient at times? Yes. Do I have to kind of uh, change my plans a little bit? Yes. Do I have to alter my perspective a little bit? Yes. Do I have to tell people things that they won't understand and won't like? I do. But there is a reward. There's a benefit. There's a blessing. And the blessings of faith are always greater than the rewards of unrighteousness. 
And if we focus on the reward rather than the action, if you have the faith to see the blessing and the riches of the reward of submission and humility, then your perspective changes. Because every single time your authority, you submit to your authority and they wrong you, instead of seeing the wrong, you'll see the riches. When they harm you, when they make the wrong choice, when you're sitting in limbo, instead of seeing the wrong, see the riches. Because every time, God will recompense you. But he won't if you're in rebellion. He can't, by his character, if you're in rebellion. Whether it's government, whether it's parents, whether it's husband, whether it's boss, when they wrong you, when they are When they are in the wrong and you are submissive, there's riches there. But only if you are submissive. A while ago, we considered the declaration of the apostles before the leaders of Israel that they ought to obey God rather than men, right? In Acts chapter 5. They were thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. They were persecuted and became outcasts of the society that they had deeply loved and been devoted to for much of their lives. Some lost their families, their livelihoods, all in the name of obeying God rather than men. Some were killed in the name of obeying God rather than men. If you're asked to obey your husband, you're asked to submit to government, you're asked to honor your parents, you're asked to be subject unto your masters, in most of our lives, the sacrifices in our culture, in our lives, in our time will be fairly minimal. But even if it is not, even if it will cost you material happiness, even if it will cost you earthly relationships, even if it will cost you your life. Let's go back to Acts chapter 5. After they say we ought to obey God rather than men, that we read in verses 28 and 29, let's consider then what happens. Now again, this is in the context of them saying we're going to obey God. We're not going to submit. And they, 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 they were going to suffer the persecution for it. But in verses 40 through 42, we read this. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council. Notice this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. They departed not fearful or angry, They didn't walk away with a victim's mentality. They walked away from such persecutions and the promises of future persecutions rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer shame for his name and they kept doing right. Because where there is suffering on this earth and we are doing what's right, submitting to our heavenly authority first and then to our earthly authority as as, as they don't contradict our heavenly authority, there is reward. When you submit to your husband, whether it's easy or hard, you can walk away rejoicing that God counted you worthy to do so. When you submit to your parent, whether easy or hard, you can walk away rejoicing that you were counted worthy to have those parents and to honor them. When you submit to your boss, whether it's easy or hard, you can walk away rejoicing that God has counted you worthy to do so. When you submit to your pastor, whether easy or hard, You can walk away rejoicing that God has counted it you worthy to do so. When you submit to your government, whether easy or hard, you can walk away rejoicing 
that God hath counted you worthy to do so. And if they, and if any of these particular authority structures have chosen to ask you to do something that is not in line with God, and so you rebel against them in righteousness, and you suffer those consequences, likewise, you can walk away rejoicing, knowing that God has counted you worthy to do so. And know in each case that to the degree that you submitted yourself to God, by submitting yourself to your authorities, there is reward. But also be warned that those who resist the God-ordained authorities over them, when not in contradiction to His divine will, likewise will be resisted by God.